Hi, good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Ambassador. And if you have a Bible or you can grab the Bible in the pew in front of you, we will be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, we'll also have the scripture here up on the screen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I'm not sure if you've ever heard that name before, but uh, he's a famous preacher from kind of Christian history in England. And uh, he died in 1892. His nickname was the Prince of Preachers, which seemed like a cool nickname to have. The Prince of Preachers died the same month as a well-known cardinal and a prince. And the cardinal lived a life of privilege and status and great power in that society. The prince enjoyed all the opportunities and luxuries of his bloodline. Uh, Spurgeon had none of those benefits. He uh, lived in a world where class and lineage carried great weight. But he was poor, poorly educated, and the son uh, and grandson of two ministers. Yet, when Spurgeon died at the age of 57, all of London mourned, uh, the report says. Spurgeon lay in state at the Metropolitan Tabernacle for three days as 60,000 mourners filed past. On the day of his burial, shops and pubs closed their doors, flags flew at half-mast, as a hearse made its way through the, uh, to the cemetery, um, 100,000 people lined the streets to witness the funeral procession of this man. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the prince of preachers, had great influence in that society. And it illustrates for us that there is a difference between power and influence. And today we'll see in our passage some of that nuance, that there's a difference between great power which in my own words, I think of it this way, that, that power seeks to change people from the outside in, but real influence changes people from the inside out, from their heart, from their actions, from their identity to their outward uh, behavior, and then maybe to a cultural change like Charles Spurgeon was able to enact change with the gospel uh, in the name of Christ with an entire society. There's a difference between power and influence. And this difference is even noted in our culture, like Forbes magazine puts out the report every year of the 50 most powerful people in the world. And I bet if I took a quiz of the names on that list, you could guess them. Or they'll be on the screen behind me. <laughs> you know, uh, Bezos, Trump, Putin, uh, the, the pale guy that runs Facebook, all the thing, all the people who are um, powerful in our society. They control the news media, they control countries, they control the bombs, they're powerful. Chances are though, if I asked you, who's the most influential person in your life? That person's not up on that list. Who's the most influential person? When you think of the people who have really shaped your identity and who you are, it's not on that list, chances are. Knowing that, Time Magazine made an attempt at least to uh, put out a top 100 most influential people uh, in the United States. And so they recognize at least the difference between power and influence, but still the chances are that Time Magazine is not necessarily going to peg what has influenced your life. Maybe they're up on the screen, maybe they aren't. There's a difference between power and influence. In this passage today, in our series, The Future of the Church, we are going to see kind of a snapshot of how the Apostle Paul changed people's lives. Like how this ragtag group of nobodies took this gospel message and eventually changed the world for the rest of human history up to this point. So, uh, Paul, if you were going to list the top most influential people 
that have changed lives and changed hearts in human history, Paul would be in the top 10 in my mind. He'd have to be, like no matter what you believe about the Bible, he'd have to be in the top 25. And so we're going to see a, a snapshot in our passage of the kind of mission, the kind of methodology, and the kind of motivation that went behind Paul and the early church changing the world with this message of the gospel. And it's broken down really into three sections. I want to put it on the screen before we read our passage, just so we're clear on what we're reading. But there's basically three sections in this passage. One, Paul is longing to see the church in Thessalonica, and he's separated from that church, and he's saying, I long to see you, but I can't come. Um, commentators note that it's almost certainly because of persecution that Paul, if it's anything like everywhere else Paul went, he was driven out in the middle of the night at threat of his life, and so Paul is in Athens, um, and he can't go back to Thessalonica. So, he notes that he's concerned in the second section about the church. He's saying, I know you're facing trials, I know you're facing persecution and temptation, and I'm worried about you. And so he sends uh, his co-worker in the gospel, Timothy, to check in on him. And then the third section, pretty clear. Timothy comes back and he says, God is good. They're doing just fine. That's our passage. So let's read it. Starting in chapter 2, verse 17. Paul writes, But brothers, when we, uh, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person though, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you indeed? You are our glory and our joy. And now First Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason... When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might be in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and brought good news of your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Amen. Okay, so the passage is relatively clear. It's a snapshot of the life of the church in Thessalonica with Paul as this missionary apostle leader. He's, he's worried, he's persecuted, and he sends Timothy as a report. It seems somewhat, I, I don't want to use the word bland, but it seems somewhat clear, our passage from today. But if you look at, kind of as a cross-section of the passage, we can pull out some great principles and practices that made Paul an influential leader in the early church. And by implication, 
if we want to be influential Christians, if we want to know how to change in our own hearts, if we want to parent kids who know the Lord, if we want to, instead of just spinning our wheels, find some level of effectiveness in sharing the gospel and seeing other people know Christ in our workplace or in our city, we should look at that cross-section. We should look at this passage to see how can we be like Paul. And after all, Paul does say, follow me as I follow Christ. Like Paul's not boasting that he's perfect in First Thessalonians. He's saying, hey, if you follow me, I'm following Christ. And so we're, you're going to follow Christ if we do this together. So let's do it. Let's follow Paul as he follows Christ. And we should adopt his mission of gospel proclamation, his methodology of loving people, but also sharing the truth with them. And we should follow his motivation, which is ultimately this good news gospel message that changes our hearts. The mission, the method, and the motivation. So if you look in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, we see Paul's mission, that he sent Timothy with a purpose. Now, again, the persecution has happened in, in, in the Roman world that Paul had to, leave Athens, or had to leave Thessalonica to go to Athens, and he can't go back. He said, Satan has blocked our way. I wanted to come back again and again. So he sends Timothy, leaving himself alone in Athens, at threat of his own life staying alone in Athens, but now threatening the life of Timothy to some extent by sending him to Thessalonica. And so he sends him there to be two things, a co-worker, so he validates Timothy as a co-worker of Paul, and he sends him with this gospel message It says in verse 2 that he is our brother, co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging your faith. So Timothy is a co-worker in the gospel. These people were not without a core message this gospel thing that spread out. And I've heard people say, I hear people still say this today, that, um, well, it makes sense that people believed in Jesus in the first century. They might have been more prone to, like, believing in religious things. They were maybe more primitive, or maybe they didn't, they didn't have science yet. And so, sure, they went to these towns. They shared this gospel thing about the literal life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And people responded, maybe out of ignorance, maybe out of a lack of development. But today... We can't believe that this whole literal life, death, resurrection, our life, we, there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's a, there's a savior. We can't believe that today. We have to move on from that. But you should know that in the first century, this passage even shows that the gospel was not a friendly message to anyone. Like the gospel went out to two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, our message is offensiveness to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And if you were Jewish in the first century, you would know that the one thing that is pounded into your head as a first century Jew, it's that you should never worship a person. Don't worship Caesar, even if he calls himself the son of God. Don't worship the Roman world. Don't worship Caesar, even if he brings you a gospel as his yearly report of Roman dominance in your society. Never worship a person. That's the Jewish mindset in the first century. And then Jesus says, I'm the son of God. I'm, I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. Worship me. I can forgive sins. I can heal your, your spiritual and physical suffering. He's saying, worship me. Not only that, but in a sense, Jesus says, your life will find resolution. You will find your true humanness, your true joy when you worship me. 
and Jews of the first century flocked to be converted at the heart to believe in Jesus, but it was not a friendly message to the Jews. And in the first century, the Greeks uh, had this like platonic, Plato thought that sure, saviors might come, but they would come in the form of a philosophy that you believe. But believing in the first century as a Greek, believing that a physical act of this guy dying and bleeding and stuff coming out of his side and it being dirty and human, that would not be the way that we'd be saved. We'd be saved by lofty ideas of Greek philosophy. The Greeks had, it was foolishness, silly, stupid to believe in the gospel. And yet Greeks flocked to have their hearts converted and changed from the inside out. All over the place, these churches grew because of this gospel message. They were co-workers in the gospel. It was foolishness, it was offensive, and people's hearts were changed. So, how do we, let's do some quick application. We need to be, I, I'm, I'm hoping to start a new term here. We need to be more gospel-y. Like, as a Christian, in your conversations with, with your kids, the way you do discipline, um, the way that you talk about your life, just we would be more effective in our ministry, in, the, in our Christian life, if we were just more gospel I think of it like learning a foreign language and becoming kind of fluent in that language. My wife uh, was a missionary kid. She grew up in the Congo. She knows four language, languages, five languages. I don't know. A few of them are tribal. One of them's French, and then one of them's English. It's fun when her parents come around because if they don't want me to hear what they're saying, they'll just speak in like Kituba or whatever the tribal language is and go, no fair, English only, please. So they're fluent in all these different languages because they've lived like this eclectic uh, world-traveling life. I know one, and I only know that one mediocrely. Um, But my wife did teach me how to say one sentence in French. We used to live in Solvang, and Solvang is by Santa Barbara. There's a lot of tourists there. And every time I wanted to avoid a conversation with someone, I would just pretend to be French. (laughs) So basically, I had my wife teach me one, fr- one sentence in French, which is just, I don't know what you're saying. I, I don't understand what you're saying to me. That was the, sense, the sentence that I learned. And so, like, I'd be double parked on the street, and someone would go, hey, man, you can't just park here. And I would say, uh, je ne comprends pas, you know, and I would just walk away. <laughs> je ne comprends pas, you know, whatever. I wasn't fluent. I knew one sentence, and, uh, but they say that when you're fluent in a language, you know you're fluent when you start dreaming in that language. You're learning Spanish, you start dreaming in Spanish, that's when you know Spanish. And when you start immediately thinking in the words of that second language, that's when you're fluent. We need to be gospel we need to be gospel fluent. We need to be like Paul in this way, that not only is Paul saved by Christ's death on the cross, he, he has his future hope in the resurrection that we see all over the book of 1 Thessalonians. The whole book is basically, you're tr- being tried now, persecuted, tempted now, Think of your future glory in Christ. Like Paul is gospel He's gospel fluent with the church to say, you're being killed. Your livelihood is being taken away. You're being persecuted at every turn. Think of your future glory and hope that you have in Jesus Christ. He's gospel He's throwing in the gospel, not just as like Christian platitudes, but a core truth that gets in, in, injected into his heart and changes the church as they believe it in all the different areas of their life. So some of you might need to just be thinking through how the gospel relates to all the areas of your life to become more gospel fluent. When you read scripture, ask that question, what does this verse show me about God, the good news, the core message of what it means to be a Christian, and how do I apply that to my life? 
so that if you're at work and someone asks you a question about Jesus, you don't just go, ugh, ugh, Jesus, you know, just like make up a sentence that just sounds Christian-y. That was my version of like French. I hope you understood the tie in there. That you wouldn't just go, I don't know, Jesus, come to church, Ray is cool, you know, what a sermon, Ray, whatever. You would just, you would say, you know, um, God has penetrated my heart. Here's how it changes me. I'll give you an example. I heard a testimony of a lady who came to Christ through her workplace. And uh, she was new at a business, and it was kind of in like high finance and corporate stuff. And it was a, a high-pressure job. So she uh, went to a meeting, and they, they uh, convened the meeting, or I'm sorry, they, they brought the meeting together because somebody had lost the company a lot of money on a mistake. And it was her, new employee, shaking in her boots, uh, about to get fired because she knew, she saw the culture of the company that uh, because she lost a lot of money, she was about to get canned. But then her boss of only six months or so stepped in and said, it was my fault. I didn't give the right information. I didn't, I didn't do the workflow thing. I didn't do it correctly. I didn't set my employees up for success. That's my fault. I'll take the credit. He had been at the, at the company for a long time. And sure, it was a really negative thing for him. Uh, so far, she reported, but he had been around long enough that he didn't get fired. They convened the meeting, and, um, and then she asks him, why would you do that for me? I know what happened. I made the mistake. You didn't. Uh, why would you cover for me and look bad in front of all those people? And I think the first statement that the guy made was like, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I just like, yeah, I want to give you a shot, yada, yada. But she interrupted him and said, but seriously, like, what would cause you to make that kind of sacrifice. And I think kind of reluctantly he said, okay, so I'm a Christian, and uh, I have, as a core part of my Christian faith, a God who has sacrificed for me. And so because of that sacrifice that's been made on my behalf through Christ, I can sacrifice for other people, and it won't kill me because my life is in Christ, and nobody can take that away from me. That's gospel fluent. That's, that's gospel-y where like your mind is penetrated, the actions that you have, that's an inside out change that's gospel motivated and that's what Paul does. Like I'll, I'll give you a cross reference. In uh, the suffering of the church in Rome, Paul writes in Romans 8 that, um, that there's, they're facing trials of many kinds. Um, let me find my passage here. That Paul is uh, looking in Romans 8, oh I'm sorry, in verse 18. He says, I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that, we, that will be revealed in us. Again, Paul is saying, you're, you're suffering now. Think of your future because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. And then Paul interjects this gospel fluency into their trials. He says, God works all things for the good of those who, are, who love God and are called according to his purpose. So he's saying, if you're called, you're a Christian, then God can make something good of your trials. And then Paul interjects like gospel theology, like Christian theology into their hurting by saying, for those God foreknew who he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Those God predestined, he called and he called, he justified, justified, he glorified. I mean, you're suffering in life. And then Paul is saying, let's sit down, I want to talk to you. Let's talk about predestination. <laughs> like, it's not a theological argument for him where he's like, do we have a free will? Are we robots? Like, let's talk. This is a group discussion, whatever. He's saying, you're struggling, you're in pain. Know that from the foundation of the world, God saw fit to send his son to die for you. And at the moment you came to faith in Christ, you knew that you were his and he planned it all along and you're justified through Christ, and you will be glorified in Christ. You have a future hope and a life in Jesus. 
That's gospel-y. So let's follow, let's follow Paul as he follows Christ in taking that gospel message and making it the core part of who we are. And secondly, let's adopt Paul's methodology, his method of kind of giving his heart but keeping his head. I use those as colloquial terms. Paul, in this passage, you can see he gave his heart away to these people in Thessalonica, but he still kept his identity in Christ. I'll use this as an example. So this is uh, a symbol of my identity. This is a dot matrix printed name uh, that was a banner my parents printed when I was born. And they hung it up in their house in Fresno, California, in 19, June 24th, 1985. So I don't need to unroll the whole thing. Well, I will. Okay, so Michael, Stephen with a PH, not sure why they made that decision. Is that even the right way to spell Stephen? Michael, Stephen, Glime, and some storks. Okay, so this is a representative of my identity. This is representative of my heart. This is a piece of artwork that I think one of my youth kids gave me on the day of my wedding. It says, the Glimes established 141313. 13. Uh, if you know me, I talk about my wife all the time, um, and uh, I'm in love. I love my wife. She's great. And so this is symbolic of the fact that if you get to know me, you're going to get to know my wife on some level because I talk about her all the time. So this is my heart. And if I want to have an effective ministry like Paul, I've got to extend my heart, open up my life to really love people with intimacy. So I'll set it here. But I'm going to keep my identity, so I'm going to just roll this back up. Take a look at this passage uh, in verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time. In person, though not in thought. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. In the Greek, uh, the word orphaned here is a really good translation in the NIV, but other translations use the word bereaved because there's a, there's a connotation, there's like a note with this Greek word that it's meant to be used like a, in a funeral, like you had a, a relative that was dead and you're mourning that loss. He's saying, brothers, we were bereaved. We were alone because of your death when being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, because of our intense longing. The Greek word here is important to note just because this is a Greek word that Paul uses a lot. Intense longing is typically translated as the word lust. Paul uses it a lot, but he almost always refers to it as like a sinful, lustful kind of desire. The Greek word is epithemia, but he uses this word somewhat, somewhat like to grab the attention of the reader to say, we lusted after your personal presence. We, we thought about it. It made our heart beat fast. We were, we were concerned, but we, we lusted after having you back in our lives and made every effort to see you. Paul loves with real passion the church in Thessalonica. He has extended his heart to them. I'll give you an example as well. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, what is our hope? What's our joy? What's our crown that we glory in in, in Jesus, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. You know when you fall in love or like if you really love someone, like a family or a friend, their joy is your joy. Like when they're happy, you're happy. And when they're sorrowful, you're sorrowful. When they're hurting, 
you're hurting. Because when you love someone, when that intimacy is like extended to that person, you can't think of yourself as a separate person anymore. On some level, your hearts are linked. And that's true with Paul. And then now jump to chapter 3, verse 8. Once Paul finds out that the church in Thessalonica is doing just fine, he says, we really live because you're standing firm in the Lord. When I was a young uh, pastor, I was in Bible school, and I worked really hard in Bible school, and so I eventually became like uh, that annoying guy in class who has too many answers, but he's like really prideful about it. Anybody ever been in a class with someone like that? Yeah, I was terrible. So uh, I worked really hard in school. I was like, I'm, I want to be the most bible theology guy that I can be, and so, oh, 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 Spurgeon, you know, whatever. I would always give, like, the answers. And if somebody had a question, the class would kind of look at me and go, Mike, do you want to give us your opinion? I'm sure you're waiting. And, uh, and so it was evident that, like, in this group of people, uh, pastors, some pastors, uh, there, were, there was a contingent of pastors who had not gotten an education but were really loving, effective pastors in my city but that were going to kind of make it official and get an education. We were studying a guy named Jonathan Edwards who is one of the most theologically sharp uh, thinkers in Christian history, Jonathan Edwards. He, um, he lived around the 1750s and uh, probably just one of the sharpest people, certainly in American his- church history, but maybe in the tr- uh, all of church history. In, uh, we, we studied that in 1750, though Jonathan Edwards, Edwards was famous worldwide for his theology and knowledge of the Bible and even his passion for the Lord, his church fired him. <laughs> world-renowned. He's speaking all over the place. The guy was dynamic, amazing speaker, just wonderful. And the church was like, you're weird, man. Go. <laughs> you know, like, they, he didn't love him. And if you read Jonathan Edwards, you'll see this. Like, he is an amazing writer. Concepts you never thought about in your faith. But in all the stuff that he wrote, I never read anything about him extending his heart to his little church in Massachusetts. But Paul does. Paul's one of the most influential people in human history, and he's writing a letter here where he's, he's got a small group of people, and he's taking the time to say, I love you, I miss you, I'm doing everything I can to be with you. And because of that, Paul influenced the church. He's, he finishes the passage wondering if he's ever going to go back to Thessalonica, and then we find out that in Acts chapter 20, he did. He made it back and was able to love those people in person again. Paul extended his heart. And someone as amazing as Jonathan Edwards can still just get canned because commentators note he was very formal, he was a very introverted kind of person, but um, in all the things he wrote, you never saw him say, John, I miss you, I love you, Frank, Susie, whatever the people's names were in the 1700s. Uh, he didn't love people in the same way that Paul does. So let's do some more application. If you extend your heart to people, you have a chance at really loving them. My issue is that I don't extend my identity. I, don't, I keep my head and I keep my heart. And it might be out of like defensiveness. Uh, it might be out of the fact that it's really uncomfortable to love people and be emotionally available to folks. But my temptation, I know, is to, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm torn between two things. And I'll use myself as a, an example here. I'll keep myself safe and comfortable by being a good pastor, but in, on some level, needing to keep some protection over my heart. And maybe some of it's healthy, maybe some of it's not. At some points in my life, though, I'm tempted to give my heart and my identity away. And when you're serving people in Christ, that might be true. That there's a way to share Christ and there's a way to love people 
where in essence, when they kick back to you and they say, I don't like what the Bible says about sexual ethics, or I don't like what the Bible says about greed, or I don't want to have to become a religious person, that you might say, well, you know what? I, I don't know. I mean, who's to say, I don't want to tell you how to live your life, and so you do your thing. I just want you to know I love you. But in essence, you're giving your heart and your head away because you're saying, what the Bible says is not really that important. We don't need to have necessarily conviction about people's holiness. We just need to love people. You're giving your head and your heart away. If you give your head and your heart away to anyone in your life, you'll have a few problems. One, you'll never, you'll never be able to criticize someone in their life. But see, Paul gave his heart away, but he kept his head. He kept his identity. He, he stayed who he should, should have been in Christ. And I'll show you, um, if you look in um, verse, it's the last verse, it's chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, night and day we pray most earnestly that I will see you again, heart. And I can't wait to supply you with what's lacking in your faith. <laughs> it like literally translated, he says, I can't wait to talk to you about your shortcomings. He's saying, I miss you. I love you. I'm worried about you. I'm going to send Timothy into the lion's den to, to check on you in, in the dark of night to make sure that that candle is still lit, that the gospel is still thriving in your heart, that God is still working. And I can't wait to sit down with you and tell you about what you're doing wrong. And it's that. He, he gave his heart, but he kept his head. He's still able to criticize them because he knows that they have a long way to go in their process to holiness. And if I really love you and we really are doing life together, that's love. It's not love to say, do what you want. Who's to say? I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but I just love you. Not when there's someone who's hurting. And I found this out, I think, personally when I did ministry with addicts. For four years, I did a Bible study every week at a group home with drug and alcohol addicts, people in recovery. Uh, in general, by the time they get to my Bible study, they've already agreed they're sinful people who need reforming, like, like on average. The ones that are staying there know they're sinful people in need of some sort of Savior. The one thing they also all have in common is that they need people in their life to tell them how to live their life. It's only the prideful, those of us who are prideful that say, no one should tell anyone else how to live their life. I deserve my independence from other people and their opinions. By the way, when you say that, you're telling other people how to live their life. <laughs> do you see the hypocrisy in that? You say, no one should tell anyone what to believe or what to do with their life except for me, namely, that you shouldn't tell anyone else about your opinions. It's very hypocritical. So if you extend your identity and your heart you're never going to be able to give criticism to people who are spiritual addicts to things that hurt them. But you'll never be able to receive criticism because their, your identity is in their hands. You are, as I heard one commentator say, warming your self-worth at the fire of their approval. Your desire is to have them like you, to be accepted by them. And so you'll never be able to say words that need to be said, but you'll never be able to have a real relationship with that person because you've given them your identity. They have it in their hands. And if they criticize you, you'll be crushed. So you have the choice of either remaining uh, 
self-righteous, judgmental because you don't extend your heart, but you keep the truth, and in that way, you push people around with the truth. Maybe in this scenario, you love telling people what they ought to believe because it pushes them away. Maybe it hurts them a little bit, and that makes you feel better, but it keeps you in control because I've kept my heart. I'm protecting myself, but I'm telling you what I think. But if you give this away, then you've lost everything because someone's got your identity. And so Paul gave his heart, but then he says, I still want to walk you. I have a vision for your holiness, and I want to walk you towards Jesus in a way that might hurt sometimes. It might be hard, but I want to help you grow in your faith. That's the methodology that Paul exhibited. He gave his heart, but he kept his head. Let me close with this. In the end, Paul is only doing to the church in Thessalonica what Christ has already done on his behalf. Take a look in verse 19 for the motivation that Paul exhibits in, the, in his ministry. For what is our hope, our joy, and our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you, church, are our glory and our joy. And this makes sense that Paul would write that because in a persecuted church, think about Paul's time. In a persecuted church, the church and their response to the good news of Christ and how much they live it out together is in some sense his glory in the, in the word play of the original definition of doxa, the Greek word for glory, that actually most literally means a good report or a good reputation. So commentators are kind of wondering if Paul is kind of doing some word play here by saying my reputation, my glory in a larger sense, but also my reputation is shaped by the church's response. Paul is saying, if you don't respond to the gospel, if we don't live it out, if you don't stick with it, I'm dead meat. But also in this kind of loving way, he says, I care about you so much that you are my joy. So Paul's life is serving and loving the church. His identity is in them, not in a sinful way, not necessarily in this passage, uh, and certainly not with Paul if you read his other writings, but he's saying, you are what I glory in. You are my main source of kind of like joy in life. Paul was able to remove the, the Teflon from his heart and really bring in kind of like a sticky love with this church. You guys know what Teflon is? It's the stuff that's on all the non-stick coating when you cook. Uh, and if you look at a Teflon molecule, there's like little dots all the way around it. There's no room for anything to stick to it. Nothing sticks to Teflon. And I think as a culture, we are guilty sometimes of having Teflon hearts. Things kind of like they're there for a second, but they kind of slip off. And I'll give you a few examples. One might be that um, we're the, some of us are the children of baby boomers and are therefore the children of people who are a little more prone to selfishness, sorry boomers, and that they are therefore the product of divorce. And that some of our lives have constantly been in flux because the, the, the people who are kind of in the God role in our life, our parents, had a, a lack of stability. And so because of that, we have te we, we've developed Teflon hearts. We've sprayed some Teflon on our hearts to say things are going to slip off because you never know how long people are going to stick around. And some of you might have that same trauma in your own life, that your friendships, maybe it's not even because of trauma. Maybe it's just because of the fact that our jobs change enough that we can move around and, and our relationships with our friends now and then our marriages now and then maybe our relationship with our church people are still kind of Teflon because we don't know how long people are stick around. Maybe you go to a wedding and, and uh, you had that thought, that one thought at the wedding that you, where you went, 
Let's see how long this lasts. <laughs> Anyone? No, no, okay. I won't make you raise your hand. We'll see how long this lasts for. That's Teflon. That's Teflon. We have Teflon hearts because of trauma, because of our culture, whatever it is. But Paul has this stickiness. And uh, in the end, Paul is only doing what Christ has done for him. In a world where a lot of our relationships are conditional, the, the unconditional relationship that we will always have is that of Christ's love for us. Like in a world where things transition, and maybe we're guilty of it, maybe other people are guilty of it, where we develop a friendship and we say, I want to get kind of here in life, I need some people along with me, and so we'll see if, there's kind of an agreement with friendships where you go, you be a friend this much and I'll be a friend this much, and there's an unspoken expectation like, don't expect too much of me, I won't expect too much of you, and if that's true, we can be friends, Teflon. And in our church, I'll be around, let's see if I still like it, if it, if it feeds kind of my particular needs, then we'll see, we could always go, well, a quarter mile that way, and uh, we could be somewhere else, Teflon. In a world of Teflon hearts, Christ is sticky. God saw fit to draw you into a relationship with Him, and through His Holy Spirit, change your heart so that you will have an eternal relationship with Him that will not end. And Paul is saying, if you're going through trials, take it to the bank that you have a future hope and that you are His crown and glory forever. The motivation for Paul is this love for the church to see them healthy and vibrant because of a permanent love relationship that God has with him that will not change. Paul is saying, take my life. I, I'll still live. Take my riches, I'll be just like Jesus, broke and effective. Shame me. Take away my family. You'll never remove from me the crown that I have, which is Jesus Christ. In essence, Paul's motivation is to just pass on. Paul's saying, you're my hope, you're my joy. Where, where the heck did Paul get any concept of those things? Because Christ through Hebrews, in Isaiah, it illustrates for us that Christ's future joy is you. Like in Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Christ is already Christ. What's the joy set before Jesus if you're already God? The only joy set before Jesus that would drive him to endure the cross is you, that you are his crown. A metaphor in the Old Testament that um, the, the high priest wore jewels, the tribes of Israel wore jewels. We are Christ's treasure that, that God has for eternity. God did everything possible to get that treasure, so much so that he sent his son to die on the cross. We are Christ's treasure. He did something to have us. And Ephesians 1 says that um, we are his inheritance. We're his treasure, we're his jewels, we're his crown. And God did everything so that he could have you. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you've put your faith in Christ, or maybe you're here and you don't know where the heck you stand with God, but you're saying, God, I want you, I want to turn to you, then be his treasure. See yourself as his treasure and his, his, his crown and his joy. See God delighting in you upon your conversion and faith 
when you're willing to throw up your hands and say, God, I need a Savior and I need you, and see that for the rest of eternity, God has some glory and joy set before him in a relationship with you. Not just willy-nilly, not just because God loves you that much or because you're that great, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. What is our hope, our joy, and the crown we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it not you? Paul is saying that almost as the words of Christ. So, we talked about Spurgeon at the beginning of this sermon. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, it's said that he preached to 10 million people as the best preacher who ever lived. Um, None of us are Spurgeon, and that's okay. But by the numbers, we can be just as effective as the Prince of Preachers. It's just through multiplication. Like we, uh, Ray said, we're a, a multi-ethnic church, we're a missional church, we're a multiplying church. So let's say Charles Spurgeon converted every single person who ever heard a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. That's 10 million people. From one guy, let's say, 10 million people, he converted all of those people. It's unrealistic, but let's say it's true. But if all of us extended our hearts, kept our heads, took on Paul's mission, his method, and his motivation of, of the love of Christ extending to other people through us, we would beat Spurgeon. Not that it's a competition. We would beat Spurgeon in like seven years, okay? If, if even four of us discipled someone every year, but equipped that person to disciple someone else, it would create a multiplication tree, a powerful movement started. They wouldn't call us the Prince of Preachers. They would call us like those nobodies in that old building in the middle of the old part of Anaheim, you know, like there's no, we wouldn't be called anything cool, but we could still create a tree of multiplication that would beat 10 million only in a few years. God has changed our hearts through faith in Christ. My encouragement to you is to just take that and look next to you while you're at work. To extend your heart, to let other people in your life and keep that gospel truth in your head and let it be a part of who you are.